0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the pancreatic cancer podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to cut to the truth about pancreatic cancer, inject a burst of creativity into the field, and provide a steady stream of hope to those affected by this terrible disease. I'm your co-host, Jordan Winter. I'm a pancreatic surgeon and a pancreatic cancer scientist at University Hospital, Seidman Cancer Center in Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm here with my good friend, Jonathan. Thank you, Jordan. Yep, I'm Jonathan Brody coming to you from uh, Portland, Oregon.
1: I'm at Oregon Health and Science University, Vice Chair of Research in the Department of Surgery, and Associate Director of Translational Research at the Brendan Coulson Center for Pancreatic Care and part of the Knight Cancer Institute. Jordan, today is a really uh, special day for us because this is not only someone who's a leader in the field, but a um, close mentor um, and, and friend of ours. And I'll do a brief introduction so we have uh, Dr. Charles J. Yeo on, and um, Dr. Yo went on to Princeton and then Hopkins uh, for his medical training and residency. Um, he did some research in between, but he really stayed on and eventually became the endowed professor, uh, John L. Cameron professor at Hopkins before moving uh, to Jefferson in 2005, where he became the eighth Samuel D. Gross professor and chairman of surgery, incredibly critical piece. Uh, to that um, large institution as he's part of the Board of Trustees. I think last I've checked, he's treated over 2,000 patients with pancreatic diseases. I think last I checked, he has over 600 peer review papers. Those two numbers alone, over 2,000, over 600 papers. He's a really, we're all basketball fans on this podcast now, but he's really a quadruple threat as far as what I know and what people have said, all the people I respect, technically one of the most sound surgeons um, in, 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 the, uh, in the world um, uh, as far as pancreatic surgery is concerned. I know firsthand he's a phenomenal leader. I've always said that if he wanted to, he, he could be a senator. I'm not sure he would want to these days, um, but he, he also is a surgeon scientist who really appreciates and is involved in a lot of research. And then finally, he's just a, a quality human being, um, which, uh, you know, I, I think um, is something that we, we should really celebrate in this day and age as far as leadership's concerned. So really, um, I don't want to go on here, but I could. Um, obviously, I, I respect this person very much. And, and you know, Dr. Yo, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off asking you the question that in our world, you know, pancreatic cancer research has gotten to the point that we're past the point of sequencing genomes. We're trying to do personalized therapy. I know you're interested and involved in that. We're trying to figure out the best way to predict uh, what treatment modality and what what treatments each patient should go on. We're trying to do early detection. But really when I think back about it, when we talk about it, and it's good to have a historical context to um, things we study, really you were involved in, and I think the catalyst for, we had Scott Kern on previously, um, for what I would say was really the, the sunrise pancreatic cancer research um, in the world. And um, I would love a little insight or thought, you know, if, if we could, if we could um, jog your memory a little bit about back in that time of what the world was like. I mean, this was before PANCAN. This was before we had these meetings. This was before, um, you know, uh, surgeons as well as researchers would get together. Talk a little bit about what your thinking was on trying to establish basically what I would say is uh, the beginning of the field of pancreatic cancer research. Yeah, John, thank you for
2: that question. Before I start, let me just say how, um, how pleased and proud I am that you and Jordan have, uh, have started this and have uh, gotten this podcast um, to where it is now and that you are really um, bringing the message to, to your audience. So uh, as, uh, as two, two of my favorite people in the world, it's great to see you guys doing this and, and I, I laud what you're doing. You alluded back to what you called the sunrise. You might call it the dawn of sort of true pancreatic cancer science. I still remember those days very clearly. In my mind, they were not that long ago But just to put it in context, I started my surgical residency in 1979, finished in 1985, 86. And um, I I would just tell you that the only surgery we were really doing on the pancreas was for pancreatic inflammatory disease, largely. Um, Pancreatic necrosectomy, pancreatic pseudocyst. It was very uncommon to do a pancreatic resection back in, in that day. And uh, partially it was because there was an incredibly nihilistic attitude, uh, which was promulgated by some very leading surgeons, uh, le- leading senior sur- surgeons in that era. George Kreil is one name that comes to mind, George Block, another. And uh, you know I think we should credit um, visionary surgeons like uh, John Cameron and uh, Murray Brennan and um, John Terblanche, Joe Fortner at Sloan Kettering, uh, people who really were willing to take on the challenge of doing pancreatic surgery, complex pancreatic surgery at a time where the medical students were taught that the analogy for the pancreas, the, the animal analogy, the reptilian analogy for the pancreas was the rattlesnake. And they were taught that don't touch the pancreas at, su- at surgery, it's the rattlesnake of the abdomen. So I think that's, you know, obviously this is one man's view of this, um, but at the time in the late 80s, early 90s, there was really very little known about the basic genetics of pancreatic cancer And, um, I've told this story before we were so lucky to be at Johns Hopkins at a time when Bert Vogelstein and uh, Ken Kinsler had really started to unravel the genetic mysteries of colorectal cancer. And, um, there was something that came out every other week. This was before emails and before webinars. And we did have electricity, we had air conditioning, we had telephones, but something called the NIH Guide. And it would come every two weeks. And those of us, I had a, 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 back then it was called an R21 grant to study epithelial transport in small bowel. And it came out and i saw an rfa that said basically we're we're looking to give out money if somebody is foolish enough to want to study pancreatic cancer we have a pot of money you know apply for it we're not expecting very many people to apply but we're going to give you some money if you want to study it and i went to my chairman at the time john cameron and i said you know dr cameron i, I never called him john it was always dr cameron um, I'd like to apply for this. And he said, go for it. And so we did. And um, I got together with some young, um, somewhat naive, somewhat crazy, somewhat aspirational people who've made a, a, great contributions. You know, Scott Kern, who trained both of you guys in, in the laboratory, Ralph Ruban who you both know well, he didn't even really know where the pancreas was. He was doing cardiac pathology, you know, cardiac transplant pathology. You know, I, I, I'm being a little bit disingenuous there, but, and we and people like Connie Griffin and others, and we put together an RO1 grant. It was called correlates and treatment of pancreatic cancer. The correlates were the you know, the genetic drivers, the driver mutations for pancreatic cancer. And the treatment was somehow we, we naively thought we were going to unravel pancreatic cancer, find a couple genes, target those genes, and there we go. You know, it's all, all going to be simple. But that's really where it started. And that was in 1991. And, um, you know, I've I actually drove that grant personally down to the NIH and dropped it off amidst a whole pile of grants. And um, you know, a year later, we found out we'd been funded. That was sort of the delay at the time, and we had this pile of money, and um, we were able to start doing some, I think. Um, as you said, it was early work, but it was provocative work, and it put at least the the major, genetic abnormalities of pancreatic cancer on the map, you know, beyond KRAS, but P53, DPC4, et cetera. So I'm sorry if I was a little long with that answer, but that's really how things got started.
0: So there's so many places that I wanna go with this conversation, but I'm gonna try and keep from, from from patient care to clinical trials to, to surgery, but I'm gonna try and um, respect the flow because uh, the follow-up question that I think um, is uh, that that, it, that that answer necessitates is, how do you think we, you as a group, Hopkins, but then beyond the field at large, has done. Um, it, it, when you look back over the last, uh, say, thirty years since that time, um, are we as far along as as you thought we would be? Um, if not, why not? Give us your thoughts a little bit about your score. Give us a grade of as a feel. Yeah, and,
1: and I'll add to that question um, because I would say that you know just listening to you talk about that grant. And, you know, we talk, as you know, when we all with our grants, we do a progress report or we do deliverables for those out in the the podcast uh, world who are not researchers. And, you know, I would say that that grant that you wrote that you drove down to Bethesda was probably one of the most impactful grants on pancreatic cancer research. Um, You know, we, we both called it sort of the, you know, the, the dawn, but, you know, what that delivered and what still that delivers today and, and even potentially has some impact on patients is it opened up a whole world of genomic research and pancreatic cancer, which, um, you know, has is, is been um, invaluable. So just to add to Jordan's question, I think that's a great point because you were part of that initial team um, and a leader on that team. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Um, about how things are today?
2: Yeah, well, I think, so put this in perspective, the Nobel Prize was just given out in medicine for the discovery of hepatitis C. And in chemistry for CRISPR, you know, back in that era, in 1991, you know, we were talking about non-A, non-B hepatitis. We didn't even, we were even calling it hepatitis C. And we had not a clue what CRISPR was. So the science has progressed incredibly far since that time. Now, giving it a grade, you know, it's almost impossible to give it a grade. Our aspiration for a five-year NIH grant, (laughs) and I've actually looked back on this grant, our aspiration was we were essentially gonna, you know, provide the key mutational abnormalities in pancreatic cancer and use that information to impact patients. Well, we did not accomplish that. And sadly, we still haven't accomplished that for the vast majority of patients. So, you know, you could say, I could be, and this is politically incorrect, but I could say we've done an A plus, we did an A plus job with that grant. But I think realistically you have to give yourself a B or a C. Our aspirations were far too rich and um, sadly the major mutations in pancreatic cancer, you know, KRAS just had an original article in the New England Journal just a few weeks ago. Um, One of the first perhaps suggestive articles that shows that targeting KRAS maybe has a role in a, a, a small percentage of non-small cell lung cancers and a couple of colon cancers and maybe a few more. So KRAS hasn't been a good target. P53 hasn't been a good target. DPC4 has not, not been a great target. And what we, what we really failed to understand was the incredible heterogeneity beyond those sort of trinity of, of very obvious mutations and how to target what we found. Now, having said that, and I know this wasn't exactly what you all asked, but I do think that one of the biggest positive results that came out of our grant was getting very smart people together, both on the basic science and surgical side and promoting if you will, a very uniform approach to the treatment of pancreatic cancer in the era before neoadjuvant treatment. So, And being able to accumulate a sufficient number of patients in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins between the years, you know, 1995 and 205, 207 or so, where we were able to perform what I am very proud of, and that is A number of very important technical trials that dealt with how to do a safe pancreatic resection, how to reduce complications. Because don't forget, in that era, in the era of the late 80s, early 90s, the nihilistic approach that many people took was that it's unsafe to do pancreatic. You know, there was a 20%, 20, 20, 25%, 15% mortality rate. And when you're dealing with such a high mortality rate, the Kaplan Meyer survival curves, if you're honest with yourself and include everybody that comes in as a, as a surgical procedure, you know, when you are essentially having terrible outcomes for 20% of the patients, it's hard to show a survival advantage f- for surgery alone. Um, So I think those trials, you know, even though the grant was not specifically focused on generating randomized controlled trials that dealt with surgical technique, I think that was one of the unforeseen benefits of going in that direction is that when Jordan Winter came through as a trainee, you know, he was able to jump into this program to help with the database, to be part of several trials, to be part of huge retrospective studies that, in their day, were really um, seminal publications.
0: Well, I, I don't think that the, the we can uh, we can overstate the the uh, the accomplishment of of so many trials. And these trials would enroll hundreds and hundreds of patients for each trial, and there were probably. 15, I'm just guessing off the top of my head, trials that were run um, during your time there. And then, of course, at Jefferson, you've just continued that that legacy with a number of exciting trials. I would add that that the second great contribution in that came out of that program, beyond the science discovery, was all the great people that you've trained that have gone off and done similar things around the country. Well, yeah, I think Um, I think that's a great
2: observation, Jordan. It's something that I think as we get a little older and mature, we're more and more proud of the people that we've interacted with, the people that we have stimulated to go into surgery, the people that we've stimulated and helped um, make careers in HPB surgery or surgical oncology or or whatever. That's one of the most gratifying things that we do as academic surgeons um, is to take young unmolded minds and hands and turn them into mature thinking, technically, you know, technically proficient surgeons. And and I think you make a very, very good point there.
1: So, so, um, And thank you for integrating the, you know, the surgical um, aspect in as part of, you know, the research and how you, I mean, what people have said to me, I'm obviously not the the non-surgeon on the call, but what people have said to me, you know, um, offhanded when both you are are around are basically like, you know, you perfected the surgery, you made it. So it was extremely safe. And as you've talked about, you know, you've, You've operated on people who are either a, over 100 years old and they died of old age, right? They didn't die of the complication. Um, so with that said, you know, that, that, that it, it's, it's a very safe surgery. You, you, you both are doing it now during COVID. Um, what would you say as far as treatment back to pancreatic cancer today? What role do you think um, uh, surgery you know, plays as, as far as, you know, treatment of this disease. And, um, you know, do, do you, you know, do you find, is there anything within uh, the, you know, we need to do better. The researchers need to do better. We need to find better targets, better treatments, et cetera. Is there anything else to perfect in the operation per se?
2: Well, that's somewhat of a provocative question, Jonathan, and, and thank you for it. So, I, I would not pat, I would not pat myself or Jordan or any other surgeon on the back and say we've we've protect we've we've perfected pancreatic surgery. I think there's still ample room for improvements. Now, mind you, in the year 2020, absent COVID, um, you know we have wonderful modern staging tools with CT and MR, and PET scan. We have tremendously safe anesthesia interventions. We have great ICU care. Um, One of the things about pancreatic surgery is, um, and I, uh, you know, I'll share a little anecdote from David Adams, who is a good friend of mine down at Medical University of South Carolina, he just in the last year retired. And I asked him, what's it like to be retired? And he says, you know, Charlie, when I go to sleep at night, and when I wake up, I'm not worried about my patients. I haven't had a complication in over one year. And, you know, I think that's incredibly observant, almost prophetic, because we all try our best and, you know, in the operating room, we're focused and concentrating. And, um, you know, earlier this week, I did an eight-hour-long tough case with Dr. Warren Maley, who's one of the most technically gifted surgeons I've ever worked with. And he and I worked together for four hours. And at the end, I texted him and thanked him. And he said his response back was, Charlie, that was the most concentration I've done in quite a while. I really had to concentrate on that. I mean, it was a hard case. My point is that, you know, we try our very best in the operating room. We try not to lose blood. We try to use Halsteadian techniques and yet complications still happen. Bleeding can occur even whenever it was dry, when we closed, things can leak even though we've tried our very best. So it's not that we don't have complications, but you have to have the experience and the wherewithal to recognize the complication and be able to assess the patient and then avoid the, quote, failure to rescue, end quote. Because we rescue a lot of patients from terrible complications. We, based upon some things that we can do, medicines, antibiotics, but also incredibly important to recognize the help we get from our radiologists, from our interventional radiologists, from our endoscopists, our therapeutic endoscopists, who without, absent them, our our complication rates would be much higher. So it's true, surgery is much safer, no question. And it's true in the US as a whole, the outcomes from pancreatic surgery would be even safer if the cases were concentrated solely in the hands of people that had amazing experience, that's unrealistic because people have to get trained. And also you have to realize the financial, um, the, 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 the financial issues involved in smaller hospitals keeping patients in, w- within their doors. And, and you know that's the reality of things. So surgery is safer, no question. And we need to continue to train bright young men and women who can do this work. But overall, we still have a long way to go. I mean, just think in the last few months, we lost two iconic human beings, two iconic Americans to pancreatic cancer. John Lewis and Ruth Bader Ginsburg both died of pancreatic cancer. I'm saddened for us as a society at their loss on many different levels, but this continues to be a disease that kills upwards of 40, 45, almost 50,000 Americans every year. You know, we've lost 200,000 people to COVID in seven months. We're gonna lose a a good number more, but we continue to consistently lose, you know, 40 to 50,000 people a year to pancreatic cancer. We, We need to do better on that. We need to do better on that.
1: I'll, I'll, I'm just gonna comment and then Jordan will ask the next question. I mean, you know, you're talking about how with Dr. Malley, you worked on this case and you, you reminded me of your story of your friend who retired and said, I haven't had a complication a year. I recently spoke to a, a researcher, obviously completely different, who's retired. And I spoke to him and they said, I'm doing great. I said, why? Well, don't have to write a grant. <laughs> have to submit stuff. And I think that just underscores, you know, how difficult of a business that we're all in, a multi-D approach of just all of us basically um, working really hard against the, the, the effort and how difficult and challenging it is. You know, and the last thing I wanted to say before I forgot, you mentioned uh, in one of your earlier uh, comments, Connie Griffin. And I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought her name up because I think we published a paper, or, you know, two with her and she was great, and she died of pancreatic cancer um, as well. and I just I just wanted to sort of salute her because she was certainly someone who worked really hard. She was a, a, a researcher at um, at Hopkins as well. So anyway, Jordan, go ahead.
0: So th- that was a great answer and, and it was a very humble answer, both in terms of your perspective on surgery and also on pancreatic cancer. Um, you know, I, I think I don't know if people in the audience are listening realize John and I were, both um, working for you and with you for a number of years at Thomas Jefferson and um, and had the benefit of really being uh, under your, your mentorship for, for a very long time. And what I think is important for people to realize who, who are listening to this is, is as a pancreatic surgeon, you're as experienced as there is right now in the world, I think probably my guess is you've done over 2,000 pancreatic resections by now, and you include whipples and distal pancreatectomies and have taken care of many more than that. Um, and, and your answer made me um, wonder the following. I mean, people, again, you know, Dr. Yo, I, as a surgeon, you're so technically, um, you're gifted, but you've worked very hard on your craft. You're a master craftsman is the way I would... Um, describe you in the operating room, but more than that, you're a very thoughtful surgeon. Um, You you show that uh, being a great surgeon is not just about being coordinated. It's about being very smart and thoughtful. And a lot of what you do, both in the operating room and taking care of patients and complications has probably become second nature to you. Um, And yet, you have to educate people, residents, junior faculty members, I was one of those, on how to get to a level where they can achieve excellent outcomes. And during the course of an operation, I know that you make a thousand micro decisions, many of which you don't even realize are decisions. When you're caring for your patients, you make dozens of decisions during their hospital course, some of which you know are decisions and you translate them to your house staff, some of which are truly second nature and subconscious. I I wanna know how you think about trying to communicate your craft, not just the technical aspects, but the judgment that I've really struggled trying to teach. How do you make great decisions Um, How do you think about making great decisions and teaching them? Yeah, so great, great question, uh, Jordan. And thank you for that question. So
2: I, I think it gets down to a couple of items. Number one, most complications that one sees postoperatively can be traced back to some proximate OR event that um, probably should have been done differently. You know, um, absent a pulmonary embolism, or absent an MI, an intraabdominal calamity, intraabdominal catastrophe calamity after a pancreatectomy, you, you can usually link to, to something that you've done in the OR that you probably regret having done. Um, now, so mu- another point, surgery, is a technical craft. And um, you know, the, the adage about 10,000 hours of practice to achieve expert. Um, I've certainly spent over 10,000 hours with my hands on a pancreas, and yet I feel like I learned something with every case. There's something novel about every case. And I teach the residents that every case they do, they should. In their little book or in their computer or on their iPhone under notes, they should write down one element, something new that they learned from that case to take with them to the next case. Certainly, you know, the basic fundamentals of knot tying and suture throwing and having needle tip consciousness, which I'm sure is a phrase that you're familiar with Jordan and having soft hands when one is using their hands to tie knots. Those are the sort of phrases that I think live in certain people's minds forever after they've trained with some of us who use those phrases. That's another point. So, you know, certainly a technical craft. The other thing is, and this gets down to the analogy of Pete Carrill. Um, Ivy League base, uh, basketball coach, you know, Naismith Hall of Famer, who wrote in, in his book, The Smart Take from the Strong, you know, one of the key points is that you have to be good at things that you do over and over again. You have to practice those things. To be good at something, you have to practice that thing. It doesn't mean you have to practice it on humans. You can do it in simulation. But there are certain elements of pancreatectomy, for example, the pancreaticojejunostomy, the dissection of the unsnate process off the right lateral aspect of the SMV, the hepatic the duodenojejunostomy. you have to practice those things. You know, we were fortunate to have, uh, have Herb Zay on a Zoom just last week here in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Academy of Surgery and he talked about deliberate practice. He talked about videotaping operations and being able to score the technical elements of operations and being able to correlate those scores with outcomes. You know, that was done in Michigan by Berkmeyer with bariatrics. Herb's done that with pancreatic surgery. So there's a, you know, th- that's another element of it. You know, I-, I am convinced, though, that our job as senior surgeons and working with the junior surgeons and our trainees is to Have them understand the necessity of fully, you know, fully being engaged in the patient's recovery, seeing the patient once or twice or three times a day, knowing the lab data, examining the wound, looking at the drains every day, asking the patient how they're feeling. You know, we, here's an example. We have uh, done a lot of work in the last few years on something that would have been anathema 20 years ago. That is discharging a patient after a Whipple operation on post-op day number five routinely. Post-op day number five, routinely sending patients home. We call it the warp five pathway, the Whipple accelerated recovery pathway five. I can tell you 20, 25 years ago, patients had NG tubes in for five days. They were getting Whipple studies done. We were lucky to get them home on day 12, 13, or 14. Now, you know, through the miracle of modern anesthesia, through good ICU care, by, by reducing intravenous fluids, by diuresing patients appropriately, by making sure that you avoid intraoperative errors, by diminishing blood loss, by doing all the things that are important that cumulatively come together. You know, we send 85 year old little old ladies, God bless them, home on day five. Some of them go home on day four, no drains. We don't give them a regular diet, you know, two days before they go home because they're not ready to have that. You know, we've changed the paradigm. We've changed the paradigm. You don't, you don't have to be eating a regular diet and having a bowel motion before you leave the hospital. You know, it's all gonna happen. This is upper abdominal surgery. So there's so many things in, in, that go into this. And clearly it's pattern recognition, it's ability to recognize complications and know how to, how to rescue getting back to that failure to rescue. It's setting expectations, it's doing prehabilitation, it's early ambulation, it's incentive spirometry, um, all those things I think come into play. And it's having a team. And, and you know, you cannot, you cannot underestimate how important it is. Having just had a family member of mine have an operation here at Jefferson today, you know, a very regimented operation. Prehabilitation, everything done the same way. That's the way we approach pancreatic surgery. The same nurses taking care of the patients. They know what to what to look for. The patients are told their discharge day weeks in advance.
0: That all is so so important. And in addition to sort of optimizing the conditions and setting setting everything up for success, it, you know, it was it was something that uh, that Dr. Cameron I observed with with how he thinks about this operation and, and, and then of course you as well as studying the complications. We don't, we don't ignore them or try and um, pretend that they're not there. We actually study them and publish about them, right? We've published about duodenal, duodenal jejunostomy leaks, hepatico jejunostomy leaks, numerous complication uh, papers on pancreatico jejunostomy leaks, aspirate, every complication that we have observed, we then write a paper on that. And and not only to try and identify predictors of it, but what I learned from you is the pathway that follows with each of these complications. So when a patient bleeds, we know exactly what to do. When a patient has a bile duct leak, we know exactly what to do.
2: Yeah. So, you know, there's two There's two great books that deal with this in some, some element. One's humorous. The other is very relevant. The first book is the house of God by Samuel Shem. And there's the 10 rules of the house of God. And one of the rules is, you know, if you never take a temperature, you'll never find a fever. And you can translate that into what I've seen some surgeons over the years do the patient's, you know, clearly not progressing and they won't do the CT scan or they delay doing the CT scan for three or four days. They're sort of hoping that things are going to get better. But, you know, if you act on these things quickly, you have a much higher rescue rate. So, you know, that's from the house of God, Samuel Shem, a great, you know, that's obviously it's a, it's a parody. It's a great book, uh, which I love. The other thing that you've alluded to, and I'm, This may be a bit of a stretch, Jordan, but it's such a wonderful book for the current time period. You know, the book was called The Great Influenza, the Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History, written by John Barry. And it was written in 2004 about the Spanish influenza, the Spanish flu that devastated the world in 1918, 1919, caused the death of 675 thousand Americans, right? So three times what we have now for COVID, although the, the full story for COVID hasn't played out. But there's a great quote, which I actually have on my door and have had on my door since COVID hit. And the quote is, a leader must make whatever horror exists concrete, period. Only then will people be able to break it apart. The analogy there is for the attending surgeon to recognize that some of the complications we have are horrors, we have to own those complications and then react to them. I think those are two wonderful lessons, Samuel Shem and John Barry.
1: What comes across to the audience for people who don't know our guest here? Um, obviously, this comes across in this in the last twenty minutes. Is you know he's he's truly. Well, it's one of the th- reasons I connect with him so much and really admire him and I think why we're so close is he re- you really have a zest for um, never settling even for the best, always wanting to be better, always wanted, wanting to um, hone your craft, always wanting to, uh, you know, always that you're already, you're already a true intellectual, but always trying to um, educate oneself, not just others. You excel at a lot of different parts of, of, of your life and a lot of interests. I mean, I'm not going to get into how many times you've um, schooled me on the basketball court, and that's just a hobby. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the reality of also one of the things that's coming up next month that I think is appropriate for this podcast is that, you know, it's pancreatic cancer month in November. You have this thing that is really unique, and I've you know been involved in other institutions, involved with PANCAN. I wanted to get your thoughts on part of how you've developed yourself and developed uh, the ability to connect with others that you really go for excellence. That I think is the basis for this. What I think is a, a phenomenon, a really under the radar ability that you've created this uh, day in November. That you know you call it the patient symposium, and you basically have the ability of creating in this. Um, uh, world of no one, as people have said, no one wants to know that they've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. No one really wants to um, buy a ticket to this uh, community that we're, we're all a part of, um, certainly from the patient side. But for that one day, you know, to me, it's, it's like being involved with it. it it's truly like, as and we all love music, it's like going to a, 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 a festival where there's hope and you bring hope and you educate and people come together and everyone, no matter if we're a researcher or a clinician or you, you know, we always talk about it. It's emotionally exhausting. It's an incredible day. And I thought this would be a great moment to sort of, as we sum up is, do you have any insight into how you've sort of created this this atmosphere, if you will, from really um you know let's be honest from from some darkness that is that has hit um some people in their lives i think it's a real testament to you i don't know if you can actually or you have intellectualized it or been able to um but when i talk about it with others and other people people don't even want to attempt it and yet you had this vision early on to to do it and um I don't think anyone can really, people try to copy it, but I I just don't think they can. Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I actually think about this a lot, Jonathan. And, um, you know, I think you have to realize the genesis of this symposium, which this will be our 15th year. And we were so looking forward to having the event as it's been the last 14 years, uh, which is essentially a reunion. You know, um, Dr. Winter and I both were privileged lucky, fortunate to, to go to Princeton University and they have something called reunions. And every year people get together, usually early June, late May. And, um, you know, we tell lies and stories and see each other and drink a little beer and have some fun. The, the, point, the point of this, when I came from Baltimore to Philadelphia, Jefferson really wasn't on the radar screen as a place that people were coming for pancreatic surgery. But for in that first year, you know, we did upwards of a hundred pancreatic resections, which was about seven times more than they'd done in the previous decade before. And we had this notion to have a reunion. And it was right around the time that PanCan was really getting launched. You know, what's PanCan's, one of their mottos is wage hope. And we said let's just bring people together. Let's bring them on campus. Let's uh, have a little bit of science. Let's have some fun. Um, Let's give them a a free meal, a free lunch. There aren't many places you go that you get a free lunch. Let's invite in some some visitors And, and we did that and it's it's really it is one of the most gratifying things I'm involved with on a yearly basis and I've described it as a religious experience. It's a religious experience, not only for the patients and their families, but doggone it, it is a religious experience for all of us who are privileged to care for these patients because it gives us hope. You know, not all of our patients do live five, 10 years. And of course the patients that are not alive cannot attend. So it's a very skewed population of people. The same way when you go to your high school reunion, you know, if you're successful and you're still looking good and can walk, you're gonna show up. But the people that, you know, are couch potatoes and are not doing well, they don't show up. So the people that you see there are through the success stories. We see the success stories and, I thank you for your comments about it. We're going to have it again this year. It's going to be a virtual event. We already have over 200 people who say they're going to join us on this virtual event. I mean, it's, it, it's, wonderful. And we're going to, we have to abbreviate it a little bit because those of us that spend most of their day on zoom now recognize that, you know, after about an hour, an hour and a half on zoom, you've had enough, but, you know, I think this is a very important event for Jefferson and for the, pancreatic cancer community, it's an open event. You don't have to have been treated at Jefferson. We have people who've been treated at some of our, if you will quote, competitors, who come to this every year because their institutions don't provide it, but they gain from it. And they gain the power of being, it's, it's, it's religious, it's like being in a church or a temple you you've, you're experiencing something with your compatriots, and you're seeing survivorship. My most favorite event, and you guys both know this, but the most favorite piece of that is when we do the survivor photo. You know, and the last survivor photo had well over a hundred pancreatic cancer survivors in the photo picture taken. The power that you feel emanating from those survivors and the pride that they feel in being there. They wanna be in that, you couldn't keep them away from being in that photo. They just feel that that is such a wonderful, wonderful moment for them to
1: shine. Thank you for your answer. And of course uh, you're, you're making it about the team and the patients and others. I still think we can't get to it today, but maybe in a future podcast, I think there's something unique about you as a leader that has brought that together. So I just, I just want to um, say that I, I, I completely respect and admire you. And seeing how you've done that year after year, and I think um, your, your generosity of yourself and how, again, we've talked about how you want to sort of perfect the way you can treat this disease comes through. And I think that's what really brings people together as well as your, your, um, you know, j- just your soul about it and giving. Can you just, um, we'll give you the last word. Um, You know, Jordan might want to say a couple of things. We'll give you the last word. But in that last word, can you um, tell them what the date is of this patient symposium? And um, I think it's November 7th or 14th, uh, um, I've seen it come across, and where they can basically find it. I mean, I know they could probably Google you and Jefferson and symposium and and find it, but maybe just uh, mention that. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. So uh,
2: a little infomercial about it. The date is Saturday, November the 14th. It's going to be a virtual event. It's in the late morning. If you, go, if you just Google Jefferson Pancreas Symposium, it would come up. Um, it's free. Let me close by just really lauding and, and telling you guys, you, Jonathan Brody, and you, Jordan Winter, how incredibly proud I am you know, I was saddened when both of you left Jefferson, but I am so excited for your, you guys and what you're doing at uh, Oregon and in Cleveland, respectively. You make us all proud, and I am so happy to have participated in this. Um, I expect great things out of both of you all, and, and I know that, we'll, that you will accomplish great things. And let's not forget, I mean, the last thing I'm going to say is when I first wrote a chapter about pancreatic cancer the 5-year survival rate was 2%. The overall 5-year survival rate was 2%. It's improved fivefold essentially. You know, it, it, you can argue a point here, but it's up to about 10%, 9 or 10% overall 5-year survival rate. I mean, that's huge. That's huge. If we can do something like that again in the next 10-20 years if we can go from 10 to 50%, wow, that will have been a tremendous, a tremendous accomplishment. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a heavy lift, no question. And we need help from the NIH. We need a couple of breakthroughs. Um, perhaps there's a Nobel Prize in somebody's future in the field of pancreatic cancer, who knows? Um, but this is the sort of disease that we need smart detail-oriented enthusiastic people to take on I mean this is a disease that needs the attention of the of the of the next generation and with that attention I think we're going to see great progress
1: I, I think that's a perfect uh, ending and um, dr. Yo I, I miss we miss you dearly and you, you made us better you continue to make us better and I'm, I look forward to continuing our lifelong friendship Jordan. Yeah,
0: This was just such a treat for at least for Jonathan and I. So thank you so (laughs) much for for engaging and indulging us. And, uh, you know, you've, you inspire us, and you've taught us the importance in this field of inspiring others, and passing it forward. And, um, and, and to borrow a phrase that I've heard you use, we, we peddle hope. In fact, we, we, we try and 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 amplify hope every chance we can get. I think this is a big challenge for all of us, and uh, and it's just been a privilege to be part of it. And um, and you you hooked Jonathan and I both into this field very early, and and uh, and we just accept that challenge to do the same uh, for others as we as we move forward. Well said. Thank you again. Back guys. Thank you. Thank you. you.